This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. In a near unanimous decision, the Supreme Court of Canada found an Uber employment clause to be unconscionable and unenforceable. The company claimed that if workers had grievances, they had to go to arbitration in the Netherlands at a cost of $14,500 US. The court disagreed. The Supreme Court of Canada recently released its much-anticipated decision in Heller v. Uber, a landmark ruling with significant implications for the validity of online contracts and for employment relations in the gig economy. The court rejected an arbitration clause in an Uber contract with its drivers, finding the clause unconscionable. The decision unsurprisingly caught the attention of many in the legal, technology, business, and consumer advocacy communities. Professor Marina Pavlovich is a friend and colleague at the University of Ottawa who appeared before the Supreme Court representing the Samuelson Glushko Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic, CIPIC, as an intervener in the case. She joins me on the podcast to discuss the Heller decision and to explain why she believes it's an earth-shattering ruling for online contracts in Canada. Marina, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. And if I may say, as somebody who almost grew up as an academic with your Law Bites newspaper column, it's a really great privilege to be in this iteration of Law Bites. Thanks for having me. Ah, that's super nice of you to say. We're recording this a couple of days after the Supreme Court of Canada released its Heller versus Uber decision, which almost immediately caught the attention of, of many in the legal, tech, business, and consumer advocacy communities. Because as you know, there's there's some pretty big implications, both for online contracting as well as for employment relations in the so-called gig economy. Now, I'd, I'd like to speak spend a fair amount of time, if we can, talking about some of those big picture issues, how's this, how this fits in with some of the other Supreme Court of Canada decisions when it comes to digital or online contracts, and what this decision in particular likely means for that contract or those kinds of contracts. But before we do that, why don't we delve into the specifics of this case? Why don't we start with uh, factual background? What, what gave rise to this particular case? Sure. So Mr. Heller is a Uber driver. He drives either for Uber um, for transportation or for Uber Eats. And he generally earns from Uber around $400 to $600 um, a week, working about 40 to 60 hours uh, per week. And in 2017, he was a lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit against Uber that was filed in Ontario. Um, where they sought, the class sought a declaration that the drivers are employees of Uber and are therefore entitled to the protections under the Employment Standards Act. And those protections include paid vacation days, um, minimum wage, etc. Uh, Uber has always classified uh, their drivers, either again for transportation or for Uber Eats, as independent contractors who then therefore did not have those protections. And so the class, when it was the class action when it was filed, sought around um, four hundred million dollars in damages for all drivers that were driving uh, Uber from 2012 to 2017. And so, um, as many of your listeners know, when you sign up for Uber, either as a driver or as a rider, uh, there is a standard form contract that pops up. 
And uh, towards the end of that contract, the contract itself is about 14 pages if you were to print it. Towards the end of that contract, um, there is a clause that talks about governing law. So which law will govern this particular contract and where the disputes are going to be resolved. So both in the rider and the driver contract, uh, Uber provides for an arbitration, so a private tribunal, if you will, um, that will hold place in the Netherlands. And uh, the law of the Netherlands would also apply. So by the time that the case got to um, the Ontario trial level court, um, it became very clear that uh, the arbitration procedure in the Netherlands actually requires a 14 and a half thousand US dollars deposit before um, the arbitration would even take place. And so Mr. Heller, earning what he earns, earns it between twenty and $30,000 a year Canadian, which is his gross income. And here, uh, the arbitration clause was, the, the arbitration process would have required 14 and a half thousand US dollars as a deposit even for, before anything would happen. Um, and I think I'm emphasizing this because this disproportionality between the cost of the process, of just triggering the process, and the actual income that Mr. Heller earns was one of the determinative factors that the Supreme Court of Canada actually took into consideration. So at the trial level, Ontario Court um, basically sided with Uber, said that the arbitration clause is valid, uh, and actually any concerns that um, claimants may have a, um, around the validity of that arbitration clause should be decided by an arbitrator, which is a long-standing principle in arbitration called competence competence, and that there are really no exceptions uh, through which the court should really decide these matters, that basically every, every concern that uh, there is around this arbitration agreement should go uh, to the arbitrator directly. Okay, um, so just, uh, just, I just want to stop you a sec just to make sure that, that we've got this. So uh, Heller, the Uber driver, class action lawsuit on behalf of all the various Uber drivers. Uber's response is you can take action against us, but uh, what you agreed to was that any disputes would uh, be resolved through through arbitration, and the particular arbitration that you agreed to is this arbitration based out of the Netherlands here, and these are the and there's these associated costs, which, as you know, are quite prohibitive. And so the attempt to sort of get this class action off the ground grinds to a halt, at least at the trial level, because they say, "Listen, you can't proceed on these grounds. the The way you have to proceed is on the is through arbitration." Exactly, and I think an additional point is that. Um, the arbitration clause also um, re effectively requires that each complaint is resolved individually. So any benefit of having a class action where you have an aggregate effect of, of a number of potential claimants is, is lost because each individual driver would have to actually arbitrate their own case in the Netherlands. So it's, it's, it's not just the individual effect on each driver, it's the cumulative effect um, on the entire class. Okay, oh, that's that's critically important. So Heller loses at the trial level, but obviously that's not the end of the legal story. No. Um, so uh, in its first case in 2019, which was kind of uh, really neat, uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal unanimously actually um, overrides, uh, overrules the decision of the Ontario trial uh, level court and goes the opposite way. So uh, the court says um, the arbitration clause is unconscionable uh, and um, basically 
invalid effectively. And the court actually starts kind of demonstrating something that we're seeing in the in the Supreme Court decision as well, that they're trying to refine the unconscionability doctrine. Uh, so for contracts law scholars, unconscionability doctrine, which is an equitable doctrine that steps in when contracts are really grossly unfair, um, in Canada over um, the last number of years has been uh, decided by a number of courts and there was a two-part test, three-part test, four-part test. And every time we add a step, the test becomes much more challenging to meet and effectively more contracts actually get enforced than, than not. So the Ontario Court of Appeal says, well, regardless of the test that we apply, whether it's a two or four factor, this clause is really unconscionable, so the class action should proceed. They also do make some... Um, uh, some some findings on um, the Employment Standards Act uh, and basically say, well, you can't really contract out of the uh, Employment Standards Act, so arbitration clause is invalid on that point. And I'm not emphasizing that one, which is actually very important for employment and labor law because the Supreme Court actually didn't make any recommendations or any actually findings on the Employment Standards Act and whether you can contract out of it. The Supreme Court really focused on the unconscionability um, and, and, and sort of uh, enforcement of arbitration clauses from that perspective. But for labor law going forward, um, any, any uh, proclamations on whether you can actually contract out of the Employment Standards Act uh, this way are also going to be important. Uh, so, so that's where the Ontario Court of Appeal um, left it, and the court um, went to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, attracted uh, an incredible number of interveners, 17 interveners, which is very rare, I think, for private law cases, you know, for constitutional law cases or big criminal law cases, it's very common to have uh, such a large number of interested parties. For something like this, uh, it is not very common. And I think it demonstrated the importance, not just of this particular narrow issue, uh, but also the importance uh, these contracts are now having in lives of people and, um, and a necessity, I think, to address them from a very different perspective that the courts um, have done so far. Right. Okay, so the case attracts an enormous amount of attention. I want to come to the interveners in a moment, and one intervener in particular. Uh, but before we do that, uh, what did each side argue as they brought it, as they brought as this case uh, came before the Supreme Court of Canada? So, as you would expect, they were uh, they were very different, and they were almost on polar opposites in terms of what they were um, arguing. So, um, Uber argued that the uh, again the arbitration clause itself is valid and enforceable. That there is strong um, arbitration doctrine in Canada that um, actually uh, provides for a background like this. That you know we have seen a number of cases where the courts have actually said that arbitration is a valid. Um, system of resolving disputes. So there is really nothing new uh, with this one. And um, so um, effectively almost mirroring what the Ontario Court of Appeal, uh, sorry, Ontario trial, trial level uh, court said. Well, it is the arbitrators who should really decide these matters. So if there are any concerns, they should be decided by um, arbitrators themselves. Arbitration is a valid dispute resolution process and, and it can provide some remedies. Um, and uh, they also argued that the unconscionability should be this, again, four-part test, which is very, very difficult to meet. On the other hand, um, Mr. Heller's counsel um, argued, again, the opposite. Uh, so they argued that um, uh, you cannot contract out of the Employment Standards Act 
that uh, this arbitration agreement violates the Employment Standard Act and therefore is um, invalid. And then they also focused on the unconscionability, uh, where they uh, pr provided arguments that a four-part test is incredibly difficult to meet, so that the court should really focus on um, tightening that test, if you will, and reducing number of steps, and that the two-part two test would be uh, most appropriate. You mentioned a, a large number of interveners, and that, of course, included you, as uh, you appeared on behalf of the Samuelson Galushko uh, Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic, CIPIC. Um, can you talk a bit about uh, the CIPIC's position in this case? What did you argue before the court? Uh, sure. It was my great privilege, actually, to um, act for CIPIC, and I will say that this was really not the first time CIPIC intervened in in these kinds of cases, it really goes back to uh, both early days of CIPIC and my early days as a graduate student to 2007 in, in Dell case, where CIPIC effectively started arguing some of the matters that we're arguing now 13 years later. And it, uh, and it went through, you know, a CIPIC's intervention in Duez versus Facebook and then Telus versus Bellman last year and, and finally this one. Um, so CIPIC's main arguments really built, and, uh, and I see it as sort of companion what we, uh, what we, what CIPIC did um, in Telus versus Bellman, which was another class action lawsuit that involved arbitration, except that instead of employees, those were small businesses that became before the uh, Supreme Court last year. Um, so CIPIC's main argument uh, was that these contracts are now so pervasive in people's lives that they have really left that realm of commercial interests, right? Where it's not just commercial transactions that we contract uh, through these standard form contracts. They impact employment, they impact small businesses, which are also in a very different situation than regular businesses. And they may also impact um, other human rights issues, for example, uh, in the in, in, in the sort of workplace environment uh, that if there is an arbitration clause, people could not really raise um, class actions uh, around discrimination or a violation of other human rights issues. So that was really the background, um, that because these contracts are so pervasive, we really have to look at them uh, in a very, very different way than we have done uh, before. So um, as a result, SIPIC uh, argued uh, that in this particular in instance, because of the inequality of bargaining powers, uh, the unconscionability test needs to be revised. And uh, in this particular instance, SIPIC suggested a more narrower interpretation of the unconscionability test that didn't really apply to standard for contra contracts writ large. Uh, we have argued that there should be a unique test uh, that really applies to these proce procedural restrictions like, like arbitration clauses or forum selection clauses because some of these restrictions are quite unique and you know there are different terms in the contract and perhaps not all of them needed to be painted by the same brush. Um, and we also argued that that competence-competence doctrine under which arbitrators are the only ones who are allowed to uh, determine the validity of the underlying agreement needs to be uh, attenuated in instances like this, and that uh, there are legitimate instances in which courts actually should be deciding the validity of the arbitration agreement uh, and not really referring parties to um, arbitration. Okay, and so we've got the SIPIC argument on the table. As you mentioned, there's literally more than a dozen other interveners, plus the parties themselves. What did the Supreme Court of Canada rule? So the Supreme Court of Canada came with what I think is an earth-shattering decision, uh, not just for labor and employment, because 
this is really just the first step in this class action. The Supreme Court in this decision just cleared the way for this class action to effectively go back to the trial level in Ontario, where it still needs to be certified, and then the issues of the merit need to be decided. But I think it's an earth-shattering decision because, first of all, it's an 8-1, and all the previous cases uh, that have been seen as a public interest wins, including the Duez and Facebook. Uh, Duez and Facebook was 4-3. Talos versus Wellman, which was not necessarily a public interest win, but was around these issues, was 5-4. So the fact that the court came out almost unanimously, I think, is incredibly important. The earth-shattering nature of the decision for me is that the court really recognized for the first time in a really long time, that these procedural clauses, such as arbitration clauses or forum selection clauses, actually have a substantive effect. So if the bar of accessing the process is really, really high, such as this one, where you have to file um, your claim and you have to pay 14500 US dollars to even get your claim considered, and on top of that, there are legal fees and everything else, that that itself effectively means that... Um, those drafting those contracts, in this case, businesses are effectively immunizing themselves from any liability because there is virtually no challenge um, to that kind of, um, to, to any of the terms in the contract. And um, so it's an 8-1, deci- uh, 8-1 decision. There are uh, There is a majority opinion by uh, sev- seven justices. Then Justice Brown um, wrote uh, a concurring opinion and Justice Cote wrote a dissenting opinion. So in the majority opinion, which was written by Justice Isabella and Justice Rowe, um, they do really focus primarily on the doctrine of unconscionability and revise that doctrine of unconscionability to um, actually now uh, be a two-part test. It, I think, builds a very... uh, very considerably on uh, Justice Abella's concurring opinion in Duez. Uh, so that doctrine of unconscionability now has only two parts. The first part um, means that there is a disproportionate, um, disproportionality of bargaining powers between the parties. And then the second one is there is improvident bargain, which means that the bargain really uh, unduly advantages uh, the stronger party. So most of the majority judgment really focuses on this uh, doctrine of unconscionability. And I think contract law scholars are going to be spending next decade unpacking that. Um, Justice Brown wrote a concurring opinion, uh, which means he agreed with the same result, that the appeal should be dismissed and the case really reverted back to the trial level for um, consideration of, of certification of the class action. But his argument was slightly different Uh, he thought the doctrine of unconscionability was really not the appropriate way to go about this and that, you know, it would muddle muddle the waters of doctrine of unconscionability and actually relied on public policy um, as an argument uh, to, again, find this agreement um, invalid. And he basically said, if these agreements prevent access to justice, and in this case, there is absolutely no access to justice uh, by Mr. Heller or any of the other claimants, that that decision should be um, against public policy. So they agreed in the result. It was just a different different kind of steps uh, by which he got there. And Justice Cote, 
uh, wrote a dissenting opinion that's actually longer than the majority and concurring opinion together. It's half of the judgment. And it's basically a treatise to uh, freedom of contract and party autonomy and why these values are incredibly important and those really shouldn't be uh, tinkered with, if you will. Um, and her result effectively means uh, that these claims should really go to arbitration, um, except that perhaps uh, Uber shouldn't really be requiring people to go to the Netherlands. They could perhaps uh, arbitrate in Ontario, and she would require Uber to actually pay the, the, the cost deposit uh, in order to remove that uh, financial barrier. Okay, so Cote in dissent says there are ways to lower the barrier for the Uber drivers, uh, but still respect the underlying terms as much as possible in terms of retaining arbitration, whereas you get the, the rest of the court, as you say, all eight judges saying that they're going to uh, uphold the Ontario Court of Appeals' decision that the that the arbitration clause does not stand, and that this, of course, then allows this case to proceed. The majority of those judges all coming to the conclusion that that particular part of the contract was unconscionable. Justice Brown, uh, with the concurrence, as you mentioned, focusing on uh, on an argument that you could you can argue that it simply runs against public policy without having to reach a determination as to whether or not it's unconscionable or not. Uh, so, as you say, a really notable decision from a contract perspective. I'm struck as as, as you've been describing the both this case and the, the role that SIPIC played and the like, uh, it seems to me that uh, this is part of an evolution. And you, you gave reference to the, the Dell case 13 years ago. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, what that evolution has been like? Because I think it is, it's really a big part of the story that if you take a look at at least some of the initial media discussion, they've ironically enough focused a lot on the employment side that, as you mentioned, uh, doesn't factor significantly in the Supreme Court's discussion. But instead, the, and that's where their focus has been, but it seems to me that the broader implications for digital contracting and how we've seen this sweeping evolution is is part of a really big story here. Yes, and it's it's almost a 20-year, tw- 21-year uh, long evolution. So I, I think it has been... Um, it has been an evolution. I don't know if it has been as incremental as it um, looked. Um, as, you know, as we look back to the cases, I don't feel that the incremental change was perhaps even as quick as, as it should have been. And it took us almost 20 years to get to this point. So I think the evolution started, as you know, back in way back in 1999 with Rudder versus Microsoft, which was another class action lawsuit, which was the first, um, you know, electronic contract um, case that actually got before Canadian courts where uh, Justice Winkler at the time, not being the chief justice, but just a justice, uh, set some of the rules for electronic contracts. And those rules were, um, I think what was set in particularly in, in Rudder in 1999 was that these are just um, different kinds of commercial transactions and there are no particular reasons or concerns why we should treat these contracts with these regular people, regular consumers, any differently than we have treated these contracts um, in business environment. And what I think is very interesting that all of the cases um, that uh, we can kind of go through were actually cases that involved class actions in either arbitration clauses or forum selection clauses. That every time and a sort of a digital contract, electronic contract came before the courts. It was in this environment where there was a class of similarly situated 
um, individual users who on their own didn't necessarily have a large claim, but as an aggregate um, actually had um, a considerable claim and, and questioned some of the underlying um, perhaps unfair business practices. So in Rudder, um, I thought what was really interesting is that um, Justice uh, Winkler basically said uh, we, we really need, you know, contracts serve to advance commercial certainty. If we were to look at these contracts differently, we would really go into the realm of commercial absurdity, uh, which was a very strong language to, you know, endorse that uh, freedom of contract and party autonomy. And I think the sort of next few cases, including Candidates versus Rogers, which was before the Ontario court, and then Dell versus uh, L'Union des Consommateurs before the Supreme Court of Canada, all really took very strongly to in endorse party autonomy and freedom of contract as um, overarching values, uh, and that there was really nothing for the courts to, um, in the context of those cases, I think, to see that uh, these cases should be treated any differently. And I think in all fairness, you know, in between 1999 and 2007, most of these contracts were about, you know, purchases of gadgets or services. So it really didn't, um, it perhaps wasn't as palpable to the courts that these contracts uh, are moving into a different direction where they're going to govern uh, a number of different aspects um, of, of people's lives. And I think it became clear um, to the court in, in Duez versus Facebook that that was one of those environments. The context was very different, right? Um, that people, the, the right to privacy has been impacted and there were contractual restrictions in terms of how you can actually challenge those um, unfair practices. Um, and so I think in this case, in Uber versus Heller, the court took it a step further uh, because the environment was such, right? It was, it was right to work and it was workplace and how does the workplace look in this new environment? Um, and it's a very different environment from, you know, commercial environment where you purchase gadgets that may not work or you get services that are not necessarily exactly the same um, as you purchased for, which, which are all legitimate concerns and should be questioned as well. But I think it was this larger environment and the context that really pushed the court um, to go as far as it did uh, in terms of saying that while uh, party autonomy and freedom of contract are important values, they're not immutable. Um, and uh, if, if they're basically going to the level where they are depriving people from any ability to challenge any of those practices in the contracts, that those contracts, or at least those clauses, are, are unconscionable. Okay, so I mean, it's interesting to see that evolution from some of the uh, earlier lower court cases, and then ultimately up to the Supreme Court of Canada, and to see that the kinds of issues that were at stake, from initially some basic consumer type issues, uh, and uh, evolving into a range of other uh, issues such as labor and employment, this uh, this strikes me that this this was a well chosen case from a fact based perspective, because obviously the issues there are going to be particularly sensitive. Uh, out of coming in the immediate aftermath of the decision, a lot of the focus, of course, has been on what does this mean for online contracts, particularly around arbitration clauses. And you've also mentioned some of the jurisdiction clauses. What do you see uh, as the as, as the bigger implications out of this? Do those that, that regularly use these kinds of clauses have reason to rethink their likely validity? So uh, while I, you know, I myself said that the case is earth shattering, I think the court was still very careful first to say that standard form contracts are necessity 
and they're not going to go away. Right. And even if you look from a, from a purely economical perspective, you know, uh, there is no way each individual user is going to um, individually negotiate every every contract for every service that they're purchasing. So so I think the court still endorses standard form contracts as a, as a valuable uh, transaction tool. Uh, what I think is a big um Impact of this case, however, is that the court really puts drafters of these contracts on notice that they cannot be putting everything in the kitchen sink, including these uh, procedural restrictions in the contract, right? Um, so the court really didn't say arbitration clauses in these kinds of contracts are invalid per se. That is actually something that only legislature can do. But the court uh, said that, you know, we really need to uh, look at them through a much more sophisticated analysis. So it doesn't really mean that uh, a standard form contracts are going to go away be that every standard form contract is going to be um, unconscionable as a whole, uh, but that arbitration clauses themselves um, that prevent people from actually accessing any form of dispute resolution are unconscionable. So it is possible, I think, to um, draft an arbitration clause that would provide meaningful access to justice. It would have to take into consideration some cost concerns, um, including, you know, location, uh, cost allocations, et cetera. But I also think um, arbitration clauses writ large that really um, compartmentalize disputes into individual disputes, even though they're part of a larger class or aggregate claim, are going to be questionable uh, going forward. So so I think um, the court was still, even in, in, in the groundbreaking nature of this decision, was careful to preserve the importance of these contracts, but but really put the, the drafters of these contracts on notice that uh, they have to be much more careful in uh, drafting contracts that balance the interests between, you know, buyers and sellers or employers and employees, that they can't really be uh, drafted unilaterally in favor of the drafters, which are usually the stronger parties. Right. So that, that's helpful context for understanding both how broad it is, but also the at a certain level that there's still uh, room for standard form contracts. It's, this is not an abrogation of, of the use of those kinds of contracts. Now, let, let's wrap up by, by noting that, that you've written a lot. This really hits a sweet spot for you and your research. Is you've written a lot about our dependency on standard form contracts and the ineffectiveness at times of some of our legal rules. Can you talk a bit about some of that research and what you think this decision might mean for this issue more broadly. Thanks for mentioning that, Michael. It does come um, as a sweet victory because I've been spending, I've spent last 18 years on, on this particular issue. So uh, when I started, nobody thought that um, this was a real concern. So um, I, I think my, my own thinking has changed um, as, as these contracts have evolved. And as you mentioned, and I think our dependency on, on standard form contracts um, have grown incredibly given that um, every aspect of our life is becoming increasingly digital or even fully digital. Um, and that before we can participate in any activity that's uh, of digital nature that we have to sign this or basically not even sign, click on this particular contract before we can go through. So, so I often talk about center form contracts being gateway to other kinds of relationships because you can't, you know, you can't go to school now pretty much without using a particular platform, which means, uh, you know, kids and their parents have to sign these contracts. Uh, you can't uh, file your taxes without, you know, online if, if you don't really click on these uh, terms and conditions. So I think these contracts have become 
much more invasive in terms of uh, their nature. They're basically in every aspect of our lives. And our legal rules haven't really been appropriate because we have always seen these contracts as commercial agents and regulating commercial relationships. So I think... um, I, I think that's why Uber's um, Uber decision is very, very important because it really um, demonstrates these contracts have gone beyond the commercial nature. So, uh, and while the decision is really important and big, I think it leaves a, still a lot of room uh, for uh, thinking about these issues and for considerations. Uh, I think one of the big implications is that uh, every time there is a challenge to either a practice or this kind of clause, it still has to be a reactive challenge before a court. It is not something that is proactively declared to be, uh, you know, either unconscionable or invalid per se. So it, every, you know, every practice has to be challenged individually or as a class. Um, and I think because these contracts impact a variety of different um relationships in our lives that we perhaps need a much more nuanced um, uh, assessment, uh, both of their impact, but also a way that we treat them legally, right? That a contract that impacts your right to work is not necessarily the same as a contract that restricts your your right to privacy or as a contract that may restrict your other rights uh, that you may have. So that that we really need uh, almost a research agenda that maps out uh, these different relationships that are now premised um, on on these contracts and that we perhaps need much more sophisticated legal tools, either in the form of legislation uh, or, uh, again, through through some of the development of some of the common law doctrine that deals with with different nature of these kinds of contracts and different consequences they have for for people's lives. Okay. So a case that that has huge implications, but it sounds like you're still going to be busy um, in the in the years ahead as you continue to focus on this and who knows, perhaps find yourself up before the Supreme Court of Canada yet again. Marina, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. This was fun. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.